what I want to do is like to let go or at least work to transform the kind of love and trust and intimacy that I want, that I can view what I have in my life with my family, with my other loved ones, and that can be the right thing or enough, or I can see that and appreciate it and not be consumed by the need for more or need for something else. Welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. Thank you for tuning in and I'm so, so genuinely so, so excited about today's episode because it happens to feature one of my dearest friends, a man I love to no end, David Scanlon. And it's amazing that we had the opportunity to do this episode because the conversation today is vulnerable. It's a conversation about the parts of our lives that, of course, we're familiar with, but we've never really sat down for such a length of time and had such an in-depth and real conversation about. And we're we're looking into the cultures, the families that we grew up with, what those families looked like, and how those families informed and shaped the way we love, we explore intimacy, we see trust. It's a it's an incredible conversation that I feel so privileged to have. And to have it with David, a man who I really look up to in so many ways. He's he's constantly inspired me to grow. I'm a much better human for our friendship and there is a cadence to him. There is presence, a calm, and that genuinely does translate as you listen to this podcast. It's it's incredible. And I mean, when you listen to him, it's just, it's incredible. The balance of humor with just those gut-wrenching, intense words of wisdom. It's truly incredible. I could be here for an entire season talking about David, but... I think that would take away from what this episode is. And I think this episode itself really captures who who David is as a person, but also just the nature of our conversations. And when we recorded this, and it's funny to think about it now, but when we recorded it, it was the 14th of February. So this is a very old recording. And I remember us just going into this call, kind of joking about how it was the most bizarre way to spend Valentine's Day, especially if you do subscribe to the idea, the notion of sitting down and talking about dissecting your upbringing seems weird, but it probably is the most amazing Valentine's Day I've spent because I got to send it with a friend I love and having a conversation that really has made our friendship better. So without further wait, this this episode is truly incredible and I cannot say enough good things about it. So just again, like before, that the episode do is talking. I really appreciate you tuning in. I hope you, the listener, you're you're well, that your loved ones are well in these uncertain times and that you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's so important at these times. And I hope you're getting something out of these conversations. If you like what you hear, please consider checking out the other episodes, subscribing to the podcast, spreading the word, leaving us a review. All of that really helps. So without further wait, because I could, like I said, be here forever. Wonderful, the incredible David Scanlon. As Pran said, my name is David. I am an old friend of his from a few years back. We met in university doing volunteer work together. And since then, I myself have basically gone down a path of working towards counseling and that as my kind of calling in life. 
I don't really know how else to introduce myself beyond I feel like you always have to introduce yourself with your career path. Um, <laughs> I'm a middle child, considering the, the topic of this of today's episode. I suppose that's relevant to introduce as well. And I am an Irishman who uh, is now living in the United Kingdom. He's in Edinburgh, just in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> and I will post the street address on the show notes after yes, the podcast. Please. Hit me up, major fans. <laughs> <laughs> but I reached out to David, like early, early days of thinking about the podcast. And I was certain that I wanted David on because I love the nature of a conversations. I think we can spend like six hours talking about Avengers, but also an equal amount of time talking about the much more intricate details of parks and recreation. But no, more, more importantly, just the kind of conversations that make you feel. Not that Thanos doesn't, but... <laughs> Thanos makes me feel things. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> There's a lot of emotions going on with him. Yeah, I get what you mean. I guess like when we talk, it tends to be like a, I don't know, we're both giant nerds and we nerd out about different things. And that can be fun pop culture, Marvel things, or that can be nerding out about emotional well-being and our emotional journeys and who we are and that kind of thing. And I guess we can nerd out about that as well. I'm so glad that you suggested for, for the topic of this episode that we look and maybe dive deeper into the idea of what familial love looks like the different dynamics that can come up in a family. And the, the reason I'm so excited is that allows both of us, I think, to reflect on how our families shape their ideas of love, trust and intimacy. And uh, I suppose to, to just get the ball rolling, tell us a bit more about your family dynamic. What is your dynamic with them? And uh, especially in light of COVID as well, I think, you can't not address the elephant in the room. That's true. I mean, look, we live in a COVID world currently anyway, as as much as we don't want to acknowledge it sometimes. I guess the reason um, that I wanted to bring up family and when when we were talking about potential topics, why I, why I included it as a, a strong possibility of what we'd end up talking about is because for me, family is one of the most important things in my life and has always been one of the most important things in my life. Even as I as I grow older and, you know, I suppose strike out a little more independently from them, they're still there and they always will be in one form or another for myself. My family dynamics and where we come from and how we come to be are we're quite traditional in the in in the sense of like how family is structured and everything like that. Very nuclear, very much so. Both of my parents also come from straight pairings where the both they where they've remained married and that kind of thing like both sides of my family have a very strong opinion of family as an important entity in their lives both of them have an appreciation for family as being one of the central pillars of what your life is built around so because of that when they come together and had us obviously we're in the same space we were raised with family being one of the most central things in our lives as well and it's it's i guess it's interesting for myself to look back over how we've developed over the years, where, where we were to where we are now and my own attitudes towards my family and my own place in the family. And the fact that currently both yourself and me, were both young adults at this point in our early to mid twenties. 
but either way we're, we're both at the point where we we are adults and we're trying to like find our feet as adults within the family context and it's it's an interesting um dynamic change i find staking our place as adults in the family dynamic as well and i guess that's why i wanted to talk about it a little bit i think it's so different because i know you went home recently mm. and and I'll get to the question that I'm trying to build this up to, but I work away for, for me. This was the first time in 13 years that I got to spend time over an extended period with my family mm-hmm. in moving back home. There is a lot of anxiety around it, but it comes. And, and the reason I'm even bringing this up is because how you mentioned of like negotiating that relationship as an adult with your family, because we're both young adults now. I am, mm-hmm. I, I am <laughs> getting more gray hair by the minute. Early to mid twenties, early to mid twenties. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so what I'm curious to, I suppose, know is what has your dynamic been with your family as an adult? How has that relationship changed? What was the journey like? Mm. I think that's interesting that like, you know, how you approach this was coming from the context of obviously you're coming out from your own personal, you know, your own frame of reference there and that for you, having spent such a significant t- amount of time away from them, where you obviously went through your own growth and your own development, what you're doing now is basically you left one pran and you came back another, and you're trying to kind of rejig that and shuffle that back in and fit into a maybe a space that was, isn't quite the same shape for yourself now. Yeah. Whereas for me, childhood was you know pretty standard in terms of I was the kid, they were the parents, my siblings were annoyances, I was an annoyance to them fights were had. I was a terrible fighter. That's a weird thing to hold as a critique for myself, but I'm going to do it. Um, in the context of, (laughs) I, it was always the thing with my siblings that if we came to blows, uh, physically, my, my move was to curl up in a ball and kick at them because it was the most defensive maneuver because none of them could approach the ball. The feet were flying. They couldn't get near it. Um, <laughs> a tactical genius, if you ask me. It was very tactical. Uh, like They always said it was cheating, which means that it was working and they didn't want to acknowledge it, basically. Um, mm. But yes, yeah, so that was kind of early childhood. I would say within my own, my own mindset of it, how I, how I look at childhood, or at least the earlier years of childhood, I feel like it was standard enough in terms of, you know, a child growing up in a family where the parents have remained together and you have siblings that my role there, my dynamics were fairly standard in that sense. Mm-hmm. Moving into the teenage years, at that point, <laughs> my parent, I remember my parents always priming us back when we we're in the teenage years, you know, we're talking 11 to 13 kind of time. My parents always priming us with a like, oh, you know, when the hormones kick in, you guys are going to be real trouble. You're all, you're going to be real problems for all of us. You're just going to be balls of hormonal angst and sexual frustration, essentially. And I didn't say sexual frustration, but uh, the, the implication was there. I was never really like that. I was always very settled, very calm. I cannot, for life me, remember a single explosive moment I had in terms of rage or argument or anything like that with my parents at the very least. What I'm trying to get at is that when I moved into my teenage years, I was the solid one. My parents never really had concern for me in that sense. So I kind of just grew into this role at that point of being like the solid one, the stable one. And that's the kind of role I grew into. And I guess that kind of developed and grew further and kind of expanded outwards. And it became less of 
okay, well, I'm not causing trouble. I'm solid. I'm okay. And more of I'm maintaining that sense of stability and peace for everyone. And so it's like, not only was it, did I have to do it for myself, but I had it to do it for everyone else as well. I've used the term caretaker role before, um, where it was, I kept everyone, or at least I took on the responsibility personally of keeping things all right, keeping everyone going. You know, if someone's having a hard day, I'm the one to step in and kind of have a talk to them one-on-one, that kind of thing. And that was, first of all, for my siblings, but even, even for my parents to a certain extent, is something I've grown into more and more as being kind of a, a venting point for them. So what I've kind of grown from is, you know, early childhood, just being a kid into more and more of a kind of emotionally responsible role, I suppose. And that's grown and grown into who I am nowadays as well with my family and even outside of that. I'm just curious, was there, was there ever a time where you went, but why me? Why do I have to be the constant in all of this? Ah, that's an interesting question. At the time, no, not at all. I assumed it to be my role. And around that time, you know, you're forming your identity, you're forming who you are, you're learning about your place in the world a little bit more and figure that part of yourself out. And like, I kind of just, at the time, it just became who I was. It became my identity to a certain extent. And my capacity for good, my capacity for care, and my ability to channel that into taking care of others are integral to who I am, or at least how I can still stand to look at myself in the mirror in the mornings. And if though that, that I think, was first nurtured and grew and developed from my role within the family. And it's at the point now where that's channeled into every part of my life. And I know what you're saying in the sense of like, I mean, I guess that can be, that can be a bit of a burdensome position to take. And it's not necessarily always healthy for me to do so. Mm -hmm. But I've only recently started questioning it and look at it and be like, well, why are, why are you part of me? What's what, what part do you play in the, in the whole that is the rest of me? I only really, like I said, only over this last year or so did I start to question that and look at it. What prompted you, I suppose, to start asking that question or get deeper into the inquiry of like why this was a part of you? It was actually part of my um, part of my studies at the time was that I moved over here to Edinburgh and started a postgraduate course in counseling. And as part of that, the, the, the demands of the course, the study that you're doing and everything else require a lot of personal emotional investment and personal emotional work. So that's what a lot of my first year there was. And I kind of did, that's when it kind of came out a little bit. That's when I started to realize a little bit more and speak not positively at the very least about my family, because I think that for me anyway, a lot of it is that if I can continue to look at my family as being good and my raising as being good and all these things being like, you know, I come from a good family who raised me well, and that's what makes me a good person, or at least that's part of what makes me a good person. Is that like the values that were instilled in me, the kind of person I, I was molded into by my family setting and my raising, that's what allows me to be good now. If I start to look back at that then and poke holes in it and find flaws in it, then I'm, it's like I'm poking holes and finding flaws in myself, which isn't fun. Yeah. I had a very different upbringing to you. There, there was mm -hmm. a lot of love in our family, but I suppose the family dynamic would have been very different. Mm -hmm. And 
I had a similar journey in therapy and I had that very same reaction because there's so many good things that I've taken from my childhood, my family. A lot of the good in me comes from them, comes very directly from the kind of people both my parents are. But to be critical of any of that felt like I was being critical of the good that also came with it. So my therapist almost recommended, let's, why, why don't we reframe it? Why don't we say it's a reflective process rather than a process of criticism? So in the spirit of that reflective process, what was the culture of your family growing up? Because I, I know you mentioned that there, there were these values that you collectively subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And there's, from, from what you've just said, there's obviously mutual care and family first. And that is incredible. But I suppose if we could break that down or maybe even reflect on it a bit more or dig deeper, what was the culture of your family, say, growing up? And... How has that culture changed now? It's an interesting question, I suppose, when you're talking about the shift as well, it brings to, brings to mind certain things that I'm sure I'll, I'll bring up when I come to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the first part, uh, it's a little lighter, I suppose, but in the context of um, what you're saying before about the reflection versus the critique and how we were both saying it's, you know, looking back on those maybe slightly uglier parts of the family is hard and difficult because it's difficult to to isolate that from everything else. Mm-hmm. It brings to mind a picture I once saw of a possum amongst a whole pile of rubbish. And it's just sitting there and hissing at the camera. And the caption is, don't touch my trash. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the feeling I'm getting a little bit is just this little possum that's hissing at the camera being like, now it's garbage, but I love it. And it's mine, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. But no, in terms of what we were, in terms of your question anyway, and the kind of the culture and the values and that kind of thing, when I talk about my family, my, my mind is always drawn to my mother's side. Mm-hmm. It's a much stronger presence in our lives. It's interesting because in terms of just power, my, my, my mom's side definitely wor- wins out in the end when it comes to how they influence the family. My dad's side is much more reserved and in the background and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess what, what, what I have to break it down as is that on my mom's side, it's very much like a there's a, there's a, there's a certain doctrine of personal success and personal worth and personal achievement is largely less important than group success, achievement and worth. Like you're always encouraged to do well. You are always encouraged to work hard, do as well as you can, get ahead in life. But it's kind of like, you know, if your family's not in order, if there's something, if there's some kind of thing going on, some kind of distress, then like your job is to drop your own place and look to them and help them out and it's tricky because looking at it there's a certain element of i don't necessarily disagree with that but i don't know how much of me not disagreeing with it is just because of my own emotional involvement in uh, in the setting obviously i do think that there's that that kind of care is important and everything like that you know it isn't every man for himself and everything like that but it's the kind of thing where they're not always good at seeing the line between you want to care for your siblings and your parents and children, obviously, and uh, make sure they're all right. And sh- that's a way of showing love to them. And I'm going to throw myself down on this bed of cold so you can walk across my back. And I don't think that line is always well maintained. Mm-hmm. And I think that has channeled itself down to like our level of things and certainly to myself at the very least. And I think that that's only been, that's only grown over the years because my mom's side of the family went through a couple of losses 
that were particularly impactful for them. And it's brought them together in a lot of really good ways, but it's hard to contain yourself from spilling over to compromising yourself for them. And I think that's the kind of what I'm trying to center hone in on as being part of the family culture is that the line between personal well-being, personal health, and kind of keeping yourself well and keeping yourself in a healthy space does not always hold strong against the pressures of the needs of others. I mean, I'm curious how that relates back to yourself because parts of what we've talked about have been like similarities, but I know you've said, you said previously that there are differences and I wonder mm-hmm. if that's a difference or is that something that also resonates with you? I think a big way where the difference comes in and it's so interesting to even observe it now, like getting to a place and this is just like a short deviation mm-hmm. But getting to a place where you can start reflecting and observing your family dynamics beyond you, removed from you, is such a fascinating place to be in because there is the traditional Indian model of your parents living with you. So say our grandparents, my dad's parents lived with us. Yeah. And in a way, since they were the oldest generation under the roof, they set the tone for what the culture of the family was. And... I I think I truly noticed the shift in the culture of the family after my granny passed away, because like she was in a way the last bastion of my father's childhood and the culture that stayed there. And uh, I think the culture as it was when I was growing up and the culture that my parents then built upon was quite similar because of course it would be, they grew up in that culture and my parents have been married 31 years now. So it'd be weird if my mom didn't also subscribe to that culture. So it's a mm-hmm. culture in, in ways very similar to family first and one for all or for one. You have to literally lie on the coal for other to walk over you sometimes. But that changed and that was the radical shift that I noticed in my journey, I suppose, where like it didn't make sense to me. Mm. And there's there's so many thoughts racing, but I think the thing that I could point to and the, the reason it's so like, I'm, I'm so inquisitive and I like the inquiry into this is how I looked back at the dynamics that I grew up in and the reflective process of like, this wasn't okay because there needed to be a few boundaries. It would have been good to have a few boundaries mm. because I have changed maybe because of my journey where I feel you can't water from an empty cup, you can't pour from it. And my parents and my family's greater philosophy some, lies something on the lines of, but your cup will be empty if you don't have others joining you in. I'm, I don't know where I was going with this analogy, but you get what I'm trying to <laughs> In the, the water pouring. I yes, don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can't be fulfilled if you, there's, there's no others around you. And the only way to have the others around you is to like yeah. give it all. And I, I intentionally am using these words because that's how I perceived it. And maybe it's not the way I see it now, but at the time upon the realization okay. of how the growth had affected me or the journey of my family had affected me. I ended up being the sacrificial lamb in some of my relationships, friendships, uh, romantic relationships, my friend dynamics with my family. And it's an ongoing process, understanding the role that families, because they're such a significant factor in our own understanding of selves and the mm-hmm. growth that we go on and the way we build up It's an ongoing process, unpacking that, understanding that, making peace with some of it, taking a lot more of it. 
So it's an ongoing journey. So not that I'm putting a sunset at the end of this, but what role does your family play in your life now? My family is probably, well, probably the most important thing in my life right now. Mm -hmm. I'm mindful of the fact that I live with my brother. So in terms of my actual social contact, he is my only regular in-person social contact. Mm -hmm. Of the people I regularly keep in contact with, I probably a solid quarter to third of my regular contacts would be with my family as well. So with my parents and my sister and obviously, like I said, the brother I live with. Mm-hmm. And outside of work, which is for, for myself, something that I like, obviously pay attention to and work towards while I'm there, but don't think a lot of outside of the, outside of the actual work context. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, they are probably the thing I devote my, my thoughts to the most. So they're very, very significant in my life right now, keeping me um, anchored, to, anchored to life, really, which is a really, really powerful, powerful role to give them. Mm-hmm. And that means that I'm feeling a lot of impacts that goes on with, that, are, that are outside of my control a lot more strongly than I would otherwise. Because I think if the world were different, if COVID never existed, I would have a different relationship with them right now. And it's interesting how for all that I've talked about, the dedication to family being important and your devotion to it and the maintaining of other people and that kind of thing. It's remarkable for myself anyway, how I feel like it's so I I did not learn a lot of affection from it. You know, affection is not something that necessarily always comes easily. Mm -hmm. And that was so far I've been talking about has obviously a lot of it has been heavily devoted towards my mother's side. But I feel like that definitely is a little more of my dad's side of things. For a man of his age and generation, I would consider him to be quite emotionally open, really. But there is a certain lack of comfort with affection and intimacy that he has and his family has and has leaked down to us as well. In the sense of like how I've learned that care and love is performed is through what you do for those people. Yeah. That's how you perform your love. That's how you perform your care. That's how you show someone and show yourself mm-hmm. that you love them and care for them is by doing things for them, which when you think about it really isn't an even view of it. That's such, there's such a focus on this transactional one-sided aspect to the relationship and that, like, that's, that, of course, is a natural part of any relationship. And it's the kind of thing that can be done mutually. But that's the view of like, where it comes from. And that can be so easily warped and twisted into something that's a little, that, that becomes unhealthy and possibly even toxic for yourself. This, this is an episode I like to often talk about just to, it's, it's a quick, like, one sentence explainer of like, mm-hmm. where my dad was emotionally. He loved mm-hmm. us. He loves us. He's, he's been, like a big constant in my life for a lot of things and a lot of what I am today, I do owe to the man. Mm-hmm. It took him my car accident at the age of 18 to tell me for the first time that he loved me. Mm. It took him 18 years to tell me that he loved me. 18 years and a serious scare. Exactly. So not for a day do I doubt that he loves me and he loved me, mm. but his inability to say that he did is very reflective of the dynamic of my dad's side of the family. A big reason that I moved back home was I wanted to discover what it meant for me to 
be an adult in this family and in this relationship. And I have that relationship with both of them. But with my dad over the last couple of years, it's been a culture of slowly building our relationship and our friendship to a point where like we have all these different conversations ranging from the traditional masculine conversations about car bumpers and cars and tires and stock market, but also... Have you ever been fishing? <laughs> we, 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 we have those typical, like, well, how are the stocks doing this week? So, so, so we have those, but what I find interesting is sometimes it's often prompted by him of like, what was your breakup like for you? What mm. are like modern relationships like? These are conversations I never thought I'd have with them. So in, in a way, that culture really shifted in our family and it took years and a lot of like effort from everybody. That's interesting because um, even when you're talking about the, the masculine slash feminine side of things, I was even thinking about my mom's side of the family, but ha- the masculine and feminine parts within that in the sense that my mom's side of the family is ex- extremely matriarchal in terms of how, it's, mm-hmm. how it works. And it's interesting because even when I'm talking about things like emotional warmth and openness and that kind of thing, that's very much what they practice. And so when I'm looking up at kind of the, the masculine ideal within my family, when I was growing up and everything like that, I suppose that wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what to model myself off very well in terms of kind of emotional strength as a, as a, as a man. And that's why I'm gay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All these, it's this, it's this darn matriarchal family that turned me homosexual. <laughs> There's so much estrogen in your family that you just turned gay. Absolutely. No, I no. sound like Alex Jones. No, that's not what it is at all. But what... <laughs> it's in the water. It's turning all the boys gay. <laughs> um, no, no, that's not what it is. Uh, what I meant is that in the sense of being like, for all that my dad, I do think has a certain amount of emotional openness that more so than other men of his generation within Ireland at the very least, mm-hmm. he's still not super comfortable with that side of things. Mm-hmm. Like he's very awkward with important things like I love you and that kind of thing. And that's definitely something within myself as well. Mm-hmm. I'm extremely like uncomfortable saying I love you to people and like, well, you know, in a meaningful way, I can say it sarcastically all the time, but uh, in a meaningful way, I don't, I don't do it very well. I've tried to be better about it recently, but that's like with effort and it's still not comfortable when I do it. It's still, I mean, at this point, again, we're all adults. I've done my growing already. And when I did my growing, it wasn't as, it wasn't as there, um, or at least I didn't feel like it was as, it was as there. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting when you talk about like the masculine versus feminine side of things that like, again, since our, since my family has such a strong feminine presence, the masculine is like harder to pick up on. You know, I, I did learn a lot of good things from my dad, but I also, you know, my dad's not a perfect human being. And maybe some of the things I learned from him were part of the imperfections as opposed to the strengths. So I do think that like my discomfort with that kind of thing definitely comes from where the family has been. We've already talked about the identity that we may have built up in certain ways based on the culture of the family that we grew up in. But I'm curious to know how that kind of led to our understanding of love, trust and intimacy, not just in a romantic sense. I I recognize Mm -hmm. that love can often be taken as, oh, he's just talking about romantic love. No, any love, love in friendships, love in family, love in obviously relationships. 
And how do you define love for you yourself? Like what is love for you and what does it mean to you? I was hoping you'd end that with just saying, what is love? And then I'd say, baby, don't hurt me. But um, <laughs> for me, I mean, I did kind of hint at it before in that my initial model of love is it's uh, I'm, I'm trying to look at it from an external perspective now, which isn't always the right idea when you're talking about these things. Mm -hmm. What I feel is that it's a it is something that's almost transactional. And I know that's not right. Mm -hmm. And it's something I want to change. But right now, love is doing things for other people and having them do things for you, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's not what I want it to be. And what, not what I recognize it as on an intellectual level, I suppose. Not what the thinking part of me thinks, mm -hmm. but it is what the feeling part of me feels. What I want it to be or what I believe it should be is just this capacity for you to see another person and still appreciate them and also to, to for them to know that you appreciate them and that's the kind of the the thought that kind of for that i i feel like i i need to learn or need to get better at is that i'm okay i'm, I'm okay I'm, I'm good at giving love but i'm not good at receiving it and i don't know how to and i don't know how to channel that into a way that like feels right mm -hmm. meaning in the sense that I don't react properly when I get it. And also, I don't know how to recognize it, I think, sometimes. But that's, that's kind of to, to say what I think it is. I think that love is like your ability to look at another person and see every part of them and say, you know what? I think that that's fantastic. I think that's great. I, I want that in my life and I want to be in their life. And that's something that will always be, which is not easy at all. It isn't. I think that like, I, re I remember a while ago writing in an essay for, for my course that I had to, one of the things I had to learn the most and had to work on the most was my capacity to love myself. Mm -hmm. And that's still, <laughs> I mean, I wrote that like a year ago and, uh, you know, I'm a little bit better, but uh, not a lot. <laughs> so maybe I should have worked on it a little harder, but that's not fair either. Either way, what I'm trying to say is that like, that's, a, that's something that still is, is, like you said yourself, a journey that you're working at. But it's not something I learned very easily or have come by gracefully or naturally. I am of the opinion that growth doesn't happen very gracefully or oftentimes it doesn't. I get what you're saying. I'm trying to like parse out. There are parts of it I don't know if I 100% agree with. Mm -hmm. I suppose what I'm thinking is that like rather than it's it, I, I get what you're saying and I agree with it, but I think you're viewing it maybe with a perspective I don't agree with. Okay. Rather than thinking that like growth necessitates a certain amount of suffering, let's call it, even though it sounds a little dramatic, yeah. but let's call it that for the sake of ease, even though mm -hmm. gro growth requires a certain amount of suffering for it to be fruitful. I think instead of looking at it that way, instead, I think it's more of a context of suffering is something that isn't just is, is unavoidable in life. Mm -hmm. Everyone will have it to some extent or another, and that that can be channeled into growth and if, if you're going to have it, if you can try to grow from it, then at least there's, there's something that you're going to get from it. More like suffering can be growthful rather than mm -hmm. growth kind of has to come from suffering. So, so suffering is an invitation for growth as opposed yes. to... Yeah. Okay. No, yes. I like that. I, I like the way you've put it because I, I think that has been the experience for me. Because I've had, I've had like really positive, wonderful experiences that I think I've grown from. 
So I think that like, that's the thing is that you, you don't necessarily need it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like what, when you first said it, what brought to my mind was the the typical image of the tortured artist oh my where you're like, you must suffer for <laughs> art kind of thing. And like, no, you don't have to art can be joyful and like, you know, can be all the good things, but also again, suffering exists and you can use that to make art if you want to. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the it's a it's a it's a twist on the the what the point you were trying to make i suppose it's a more realistic twist and i like mm. it I, and that has been my experience as well there have been such positive moments in my life that have led to growth mm-hmm. i know you mentioned that trusting doesn't isn't isn't an easier automatic process for you mm-hmm. and i want to leave this as open because i'm i'm i'm, I'm curious to know what what comes out when I throw the question out there. Go on. But trusting isn't a natural process for a lot of us. Mm. What is that for you? Like, is trusting a natural process for you? Uh, definitely not. No. Okay. Yeah. I, if trust for me is, it's something that's really, I've come to realize is I grapple a lot with. Mm-hmm. And... I, I don't, again, I definitely do not do easily or does not come well to me. I really, 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 really don't trust people a lot. Mm-hmm. I've recently begun therapy and I told my therapist there that I don't trust him. And we're a few weeks in at this point. And I know that's natural to not not fully trust someone like that at that point in time. But that's the thing is, is not only is it something I don't think I'm good at or comes naturally to me, but that's also seems right now anyway, it's something that really seems important to me as well. Mm-hmm. Trust, I suppose, for me, comes across as this capacity to not filter or not concern myself with precisely what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I feel like I'm a very, very considered person. I think about what I say before I'm going to say it. I will frequently find myself in a position of every time someone says something, you know, someone could say something as simple as, I really like your jumper, David. Very simple, genuine, cool jumper comment. You know, it doesn't need to be anything more than that. But I'll sit there and I will calculate precisely why are they saying that? What exactly is the angle they're trying to work at? Are they interested in me and they're trying to flatter me? Do they want something from me? Do they actually mean it? Or are they just saying it because it's a social performance to to compliment people's appearances? Mm -hmm. And I will work all of those angles and kind of come to my own decision on what they mean. And that is constant for myself. I don't trust anyone else's narrative, but my own. Mm-hmm. And so anything that comes by my desk needs to be put through the correct, the correct offices first before it's appro- stamped for approval, basically. And that means that I do need, and I need to, or at least I feel the need to consistently challenge in my own mind, everything that, that, that is said to me or said around me. And also what I plan to say myself. Mm-hmm. And because I feel this need, I cannot see myself trusting because I feel like that is antithetical to trusting Mm -hmm. that I can't believe someone without having to kind of run it through my own filter first. I don't think that's really, or at least I don't feel like that's trust. Trust, I shouldn't have to necessarily work it through the, work it through my calculations first. But then again, am I putting trust on a pedestal? Am I creating this like, idealistic model of trust fully in the moment at all times we're all open feeling people in every Mm -hmm. second without a fear in the world kind of thing that's what i want trust to be 
that would be beautiful if it was. Yeah. And because I want it to be so much and the fact that it doesn't measure up like that for myself, I find it difficult to think of myself as a trusting person. As you were saying there, just just when you were talking there, my mind went, does he trust me? Does he trust me when I tell him? I knew you were thinking that. (laughs) (laughs) Every time I say that to someone, I'm talking about my trust issues with someone. I'm like, I know they're thinking about whether I trust them. (laughs) No, but I get what you mean. I, I, I do. And I understand. And it's curious that you put it that way. It's like, it almost really has a parallel with your understanding or the way you s- define love for yourself of like transactional in nature. It's like, mm-hmm. I give love, you give love back. You're telling me that you like my jumper. What's the, what's the transactional value of this compliment? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a right answer. I mean, you, I hope <laughs> you know this, but like there's, there's no right answer and it's an ongoing process. It, 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 mm-hmm. What you said there is like, did I actually trust them? Does trust have to be like that? Much like our different journeys that have led us to different, somehow similar, but different understandings of love, ideas of how the family led to where we are as individuals. I think it's, the, the, this episode of the podcast, podcast should be called the ongoing process podcast. Oh my God. <laughs> because, because it is, it is the nature of the conversation itself on family values and love, trust and intimacy is you can't have the conversation without acknowledging that, yes, you may be at a place in your life right now with a certain understanding of it. But with every passing minute, you're heading in a direction of a deeper understanding of it all. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say that again, how when I was saying before about how I can, you know, I feel like I can't trust and I hold trust on this pedestal. Mm-hmm to walk it back that's similar with love i suppose and that like i feel like i don't that love for me doesn't work right and Mm -hmm. i hold a an idealistic view of it of again this transcendental beautifully open uncompromised you know pure thing and that's something again i don't feel like i have because it's not necessarily a fair thing to expect but i want that I want that, that love. I want that trust. I want those things because they seem wonderful and not having them means feels wrong because I believe that to be a thing that I should have. Mm -hmm. I have held like there's a time in my life before therapy and after therapy. Mm. And I may sound like a broken record when I say this, but going into therapy fundamentally changed the trajectory that I took. So I used to place love on such a pedestal where like I would be so careful when it came to love and giving love. And I mean, not to say I didn't fall in love like a madman all the time, but (laughs) such a romantic, romantic. (laughs) but, and I even used to use the word hopeless romantic, which is something I completely disagree with on a fundamental level now. Hmm. But with my relationship with love was you have to be on a similar pedestal for me to even equate you to love. Therefore, I ended up putting a lot of people I was in love with on a pedestal, which is disastrous in so many ways and not conducive Mm -hmm. to a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. On the other end, trust was readily given. Trust for me, and I can see hints of how that came from our family. Trust was given and only revoked when it was betrayed. Mm. And I almost wish, I almost wish that it wasn't that way because it leads to disappointment. It does. Yeah. 
and a very optimistic on a day like today when I'm feeling good about life and I'm happy and I'm in a happy place, I would say, but that is the price you pay for living a fulfilled life. On days when like mm. that trust is betrayed, I find I almost wish on days when like I've had friendships where there has been a moment where trust didn't retain its base. It's it, It's been traumatic. And on those days, I'd be like, like everything is shit, love, nothing. What I find so interesting, and again, the cop out is there's no definitive answer, but what I'd really find interesting is you and I have such different approaches fundamentally on mm. trusting, obviously the shared values, which is why we subscribe to our ideas of what a friendship is mm -hmm. and what you mean to me and I mean to you. But we come from such fundamental places on trust, on love and on like our family and how that shaped us and changed us that it's so interesting to see how our human conditions of who we are was still conducive to your friendship was still like a space where we could get that friendship going mm. and uh, I suppose the last last inquiry I want to maybe have a look at mm -hmm. is around intimacy we've we've talked about love our relationship with love trust as well and you cannot talk about those two things without also having a hint of like okay so how does intimacy factor in all of this and the way i'm coming at intimacy isn't so much well it's hard to because the narrative around intimacy is always around like matters of the heart but i think friendships have a very intimate element to it i think crying in front of a friend or holding them in a hard moment even a more happy moment as well there's intimacy in friendship and there's definitely intimacy in family so all these different facets of just basically intimacy in an all encapsulating sense what does it mean to you what has your journey been of it and yeah because I'm, I'm curious and leading up to the discussion i'm curious to know how that has formed itself for you well oxford dictionary dictionary defines uh intimacy as no one <laughs> i was you are so prepared for this <laughs> I, I looked up all the definitions before i came here no i definitely did not look up the oxford dictionary definition of uh intimacy no i suppose for me what intimacy means or how it kind of because you're right it's completely intertwined with the various other topics we've already talked about and it's kind of just another facet of the same general goopy feels uh material mm -hmm. What it is, I suppose, is being intimate with someone means trusting them with your vulnerabilities. That's beautiful. Yeah, That's I know, right? <laughs> I didn't even prepare that. <laughs> um, yes, no, it's uh, being able to be vulnerable with someone in a space or accept someone else's vulnerabilities in a space and like have that be what the interaction is about is being intimate with someone. Mm -hmm. You obviously know yourself, and as your listeners will now learn, I've not exactly had a very prolific romantic history. So really, I've never really been that romantically intimate with somebody. And I can try to be emotionally intimate with someone. That's the harder one, but I can try to be it. Or I can be physically intimate with someone, but I can't be both. It's too much for me to do both because it's the kind of it that there's a lot of vulnerability there that I don't really that that's too much for me to, to let someone in on that part. So what I find is that 
so far in my life, I've tended more towards casual encounters. Let's to be um, a little more uh, diplomatic about how we phrase that. Mm-hmm. This is all pre-COVID. This last year has been a complete dry spell. Let me tell you, nothing kills the nothing kills the fucking around like a major pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but regardless, regardless of that, so that's what I, where I've been with things, and that like I'm very I'm I'm quite physically comfortable in those encounters. You know, I I've never like felt insecure in like terms of my physical safety or well-being or like that I'm being too vulnerable physically with someone in that space. But like emotionally, there's nothing going on at that time. And then obviously, on the other hand, we've got things like like my friendships, like my relationship with my family, where I feel a little more emotionally intimate. But things like I don't tend to be very comfortable physically in terms of like hugging people or like showing more physical aspects of emotion and that kind of thing. That's not something I do that much. So there's like a very strong divide for me there where I can't do both with people mm-hmm. and be comfortable with it. And just over this last two weeks, very recently anyway, I decided to, you know, what the hell, let's try Tinder again and at least do the the, the messaging side of things. Mm-hmm. And like, I've been talking to some guys and it's got along great, no complaints. Some of them I've, I've gotten along very well with. But what I find is that if there's a sexual aspect to it introduced, whether it's like an actual like, you know, sexting kind of thing, or even if the guy I'm talking with will become complimentary about my looks or anything like that, I pull away. It's like I'm repulsed because maybe those are the guys I'm starting to try to mostly open up with. And mm-hmm. then they bring in the physical aspect and I'm like, nah, mate, can't do this. Intimacy is a weird one for me and not something that comes by me easily. and vulnerabilities and trust obviously go hand in hand. And since I don't trust easily, my vulnerabilities don't come easily either. So I have to set myself certain protections or barriers to any of my relationships that will keep me safe when I'm doing these things. And keeping myself safe trumps intimacy. And so it does not come to myself very easily at all. That's my spiel. There's a lot to say there. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there as well. Yeah, I know. I hope you're prepared for uh, to to decode that um, four thousand words think piece. <laughs> I think I need like a PhD to do that. I know, right? <laughs> no, like this is literally the material of some of the stuff I was going over in therapy recently. I think like two weeks mm-hmm. ago, I was talking. I was talking about like the the sexual side of things because I again I recently just pulled away from a guy I was chatting with on on Tinder, and I was like, why do I do this kind of thing? So it, these are more recent discoveries of myself, but it is definitely, you know, I've known, I kind of, I've at least partially known it for a while. You can tell me I'm a fine piece of meat, but don't tell me you also want to get to know me more intimately because that ain't happening. I can't see David, the like think and feel in person and David, the piece of meat existing in the same room and being comfortable with it. And it's more like, it's not for myself. Like, yeah, I can recognize that those parts of myself in the, mm-hmm. in the one space. But I can't let other people recognize it easily. I see. Your safety measures get triggered and therefore the shutdown happens. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, in non-romantic relationships, in platonic relationships, mm-hmm. like it's still kind of a thing, obviously less so because, yeah, mm-hmm. again, the physical side of things is less of a, an overall uh, presence in that sense. Like, yeah, I, I can feel it in the sense of like, I don't like... Again, previously when I was talking about David, you're wearing a nice jumper mm-hmm. and I get all distrustful and Ooh, what the hell are you talking about kind of thing mm-hmm. that will come in, obviously. Mm-hmm. Things like hugs and that kind of thing. 
I don't do easily. But I mean, again, I live with my brother. And when was the last time we hugged? And, you know, obviously, that's only 50% me, 50% is obviously his. Yes. Which ties back to the family thing in the sense that like, maybe he's similar. Maybe that's just who we are as, as people is that we're not physically affectionate. Yes. Again, hugs work the kind of thing. Hugs are the kind of thing that are dispensed when like you're going away for a couple of months mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. You don't just hug someone because they're like special occasions, mm-hmm. you know? And those are like, I, I kind of view the hug as like a very core aspect of physicality in a platonic relationship. It's the easiest thing to translate anyway. Cause then you're talking about, if you're talking outside of that, you're talking about things like, I don't know. I mean, I know hand holding and that kind of thing can be part of it, but Jesus, if I can't hold someone, I'm definitely not holding their hand. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I get what you mean. It's, it's interesting how it all goes back to the family. And for you, it's almost easier to observe because you're with your brother. Like you're yeah. sharing that space mm-hmm. together. And to kind of tie it up mm-hmm. in a way, we don't have the answers. We may think we do, but we don't. And I think it's only in understanding our journeys, our different constituents of the things that make us up. Mm -hmm. I think through a process of check-in, I think we can get to a place where we understand what the fuck we're all on about. (laughs) Because you can't, you can't express, be that love, be that trust, be that intimacy without having a deeper understanding or a good understanding of where you're at and who you're in the moment. And it takes mm. practice. It takes discipline. Mm. But we're, we're on a journey. We're, we're, we're on that process. Yeah. And here's my question to you, because I'd, I'd be interesting. It would be very interesting to listen to this podcast five years in the future. Oh, gosh, it's the, it's the letter you write to yourself all over again. Yes, it really is. <laughs> if, 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 if you have a goal, if you have a vision, an idea, a hope, a dream, whatever have you, of the self five years in the future, what would you say it is? What would you like it to be? Well, I think a lot of what I've been hinting at across this entire podcast and what I know within myself as well, I suppose, is that in in the context of the ongoing journey and everything, for me, it's been a case of up to now, what my journey has been, has been gaining that understanding. I kind of came from a place of ignorant bliss to come to learn these things uh, or at least start to learn these things about myself and learn more and more and more about how I tick and why I tick. What my desire is for the next stages and where I want to be is to translate that understanding into my lived experience. And what I want to do is like to let go or at least work to transform the kind of love and trust and intimacy that I want, that I can view what I have in my life with my family, with my other loved ones. And that can be the right thing or enough, or I can see that and appreciate it and not be consumed by the need for more or need for something else. That's what I want to have, because I think that's my, my biggest challenge is to, is to, to, to be able to look at those things and like properly appreciate them because sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm appreciating them enough, but I would love that, that to be where I end up being. That's fucking beautiful. Well, thank you. I do paint a beautiful picture, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that's so good. And I hope, David, five years in the future, that when you're listening to this right now, that all of this has come to pass. And if some of it's not, 
that you find yourself continuing to grow in that journey and in that process. And to the David in front of me right now, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this. I absolutely love you for doing this. And thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you to yourself and all the listeners as well. Do we do, a, do we do a call to action, like a like, comment, subscribe thing? Like, comment, subscribe. I'll say that much. Go ahead. Shout out to the listeners. You're all great. <laughs> Love and Citizenship is part of the Writer Project. We have new episodes out every Wednesday, and you can find out more in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll catch you in the next one.